Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you for subscribing to the Here We Are podcast. Today we're talking about beer, talking about the evolution of alcohol and how science is influencing our modern alcohol manufacturing processes. Imagine this is going to be a very popular episode, obviously a popular topic that uh, is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts and just super interesting. Hopefully you get some new insights. Uh, Speaking of science, comedy, and beer all being mixed together into one wonderful show, my new live show, Stand Up Science, me hosting with two academics and another comedian is taking off. I'm soft launching in eight cities starting in October by the time you're listening to this. It may even be too late to catch the first couple. October 11th in Madison is the very first one. Doing Madison, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Des Moines, Portland, Seattle, and Tacoma, Washington. And guys, I have been working toward this for a long time. I'm using uh, I'm using my resources, having networked throughout academia and gotten all these guests for the Here We Are podcast, and, uh, you know, obviously I have strong ties to the comedy community, having been a stand-up for 15 years now, and uh, and having done the good trip tour and 111-city tour, uh, 111-city tour with that show, and getting to perform in a bunch of these indie venues has uh, just uh, helped me put all of these pieces together for what I think is going to be maybe the most successful thing of my career. I'm hoping it goes all around the country, and I really want your help. So I'm doing these eight cities just to see how it goes, to make sure it's as good of an idea as I think that it is. And uh, sometimes things are a, a good idea, um, and and I know the show's going to be fantastic, and everyone that shows up is going to love it. I'm not worried about that at all. Now, the big part is getting butts in the seat. How do you get the word out? How do you get people that you know would like this show uh, to even know that it exists in the first place? One of the best ways to do that is through word of mouth. So I need to inspire you guys to spread the word for me. How do I do that? Well, I have this idea. Maybe you don't live in Madison, Minneapolis, Chicago, Milwaukee, Des Moines, Portland, Seattle, or Tacoma, but I bet you, if you think hard enough, you got to know somebody that does. If you can help spread the word for me, any of these venues, they're all about 150 seats other than Seattle and Tacoma, which are larger. I wanted to try a couple large ones just to see if we can fill them. All about 150 seats. That's as small as I can uh, as I could possibly go and still make this economically uh, viable if it does uh, uh, fill up. So, uh, but it's also at the same time as pragmatic as possible. So if if we fill those these 150 seat venues, what that means is that I will rebook each one of those shows. Every one that sells out uh, gets rebooked for three months later, and and the next one three months later, if that one does well again, then it's a quarterly show. Now we're doing it every three months in that city. Now, you don't live in those cities, so why does this affect you? Because for each one of those shows that sells out, that 
means that this idea is strong enough for me to try in another city. All these cities that I mentioned are kind of nearby for me. They're convenient. They're in my comfort zone areas where I know I uh, can uh, usually draw a little bit better. And so if I know it works there, then I can expand. So for each one of these cities, they'll be rebooked for a quarterly venue if it's successful. And I will venture out into a new city to try stand-up science. So it's going to be me hosting. I'm going to do 10, 15 minutes of science jokes and, and uh, some, uh, you know, just smarter content is all. I'm just, uh, uh, a lot of times I you have to, you have to kind of um, connect to the lowest common denominator in a lot of comedy clubs. And, uh, and so building a show like this, me and the other comic on the show won't have to do that. And it also gives a format for the academics to be a little looser than they normally uh, have to be at, say, a conference or giving lectures for students. So it's me hosting, then an academic giving like a 15 to 20 minute like TED Talk sort of thing, hopefully a little looser, uh, maybe not so uh, hokey and motivational speaking is is the hope maybe a little toward the uh, more fun and provocative side and then a local comic who i'm encouraging to do some of their most cerebral material and and then another scientist doing another talk and then bringing everyone on stage for a group discussion and q a so a little like the live here we are podcast that we did at the end so you guys get to be involved as well i think uh connecting people with um, academics in their area and academics with curious folks like you is something that can really inspire change in uh, in this world. Once uh, once you guys get to be involved, and there's nothing quite like a live show. I loved doing the Here We Are podcast live. I hope to do more in the future. But this show, I think, is just a more uh, marketable and probably even a more fun format for the context of a live event. So uh, please, once again, anything that you can do to spread the word, even if it's just retweeting my tweets, going through Facebook uh, invites and and uh, spreading the word that way, sharing those, following me on Instagram, Shane Moss Comedy, anything like that that you can do, that increases your odds that you will get to see this. If you are in one of those cities, come out to these ones because if it, if it uh, sells out this first one, I'll do more in the future and we'll really have the ball rolling after that. So I hope to see you all there. I hope to see all your friends there and everyone you know. Thank you very much and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am so excited. I'm talking to the Brewery Quality Assurance Manager at Full Sail Brewery in 
Kyla Hard Kombucha. Kevin McCabe is joining me. Did I nail it? Yeah, that was great. Oh my goodness. I have never nailed the intro on the first time before, especially one that's so long. Uh, this is so exciting. I just had one of the best. I, I've had some pretty good tours while, while getting to, uh, while doing this podcast and traveling around and, uh, hearing all about different people's work, but I just got, uh, a brewery tour here at Full Sail and Hood River. And, uh, and I also, I used to be a factory worker. Um, and I have to tell you, best smelling factory <laughs> I have ever, I worked in a crouton factory. Ooh. That was pretty good. That was, that was a good smelling factory, but I think this might have topped it. It was, I, I have an idea for it because you guys have a, um, a new, line of kombucha so you're experimenting you're getting some new products out there an air freshener that smells like this brewery huh? million dollar idea <laughs> all right perfect well uh I, we'll split it how Sounds about good. that if it really takes off um so uh i i'm i think i know where to start yeah i know where to start i'm just we have so much to talk about today i think we're going to go from the beginning of beer all the way to the present. We have, we have so much to cover in an hour time. Why don't you first, uh, because this is a science podcast and I just introduced you as a, as a quality assurance manager. Why don't, why don't you tell people a little bit about your background? So, uh, so yeah, people, people know why, uh, why this is still a science podcast and not just a, a new brewery podcast that I'm doing. Yeah. So, uh, my background was in research science. I always thought I would be a research scientist and run a lab and teach at a university. I never really thought I would find myself in a brewery, but here I am. I uh, actually started working in my father's genetics lab when I was about 12 years old, doing bioinformatics before it was called that, uh, looking at you know, using molecular technologies, DNA-based technologies uh, to diagnose infectious diseases much faster than culture did some uh yeast genetics work studying cancer when i was an undergrad at johns hopkins uh carried on studying cancer cancer genetics and uh, uh hereditary breast cancer and Fanconi anemia uh dna double strand break repair for my phd thesis at oregon health sciences university uh, postdoc in environmental engineering doing everything from studying whooping cough to uh, going down to the Gulf Coast after the Deepwater Horizon spill and looking at changes in microbial communities in the air there. Uh, to study the microbiology of LA's drinking water, oddly enough. Hmm. Uh, and then found my way out to the gorge, uh, working at a community college teaching. Hmm. Oh, it's just a beautiful area. Oh, yeah. 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 So you just came here because it's an awesome <laughs> awesome place to live well it was um my wife got a full-time faculty position at the college and it's her dream job in a dream place and ah. couldn't turn it down so i took a part-time job at the college and uh part-time community college teaching does not pay well so <laughs> i applied for a technician position here at full sale and uh they hired me on to run the lab and the rest is history 
appreciate your part-time community college <laughs> teachers, everybody. They don't get enough pay. They don't get enough respect. Uh, well, he, so here you are at Full Sail now using your, your science to cure stress uh, <laughs> in people. I, so first off, oh my gosh. I So I showed up here and uh, it, uh, with some questions ready and, and loaded. And then I'm this whole time I've been distracted because you have this new product that's going to get me back. Is it off the wagon or on the wagon? I, I don't drink right now. I always forget if it's... I think it's I'm on the wagon right now. Like that's sober, right? I, no, nobody. I've knows. never paid attention because I've always been drinker. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I'm uh, I, I'm interested in the the hard kombucha. Okay. That you have, I, I haven't seen it before. When did you start releasing? That product uh, was released pretty locally in March of this year. Uh-huh. Uh, it's now spread out in almost two dozen states. And it's growing pretty quickly. Uh, it's a brand new product, brand new sort of category of product. There's a couple other makers out there, but this is uh, sort of unique in what we're able to offer in that it's so it's an alcoholic kombucha, 4.5% alcohol, um, but it still has the live cultures uh, and we keep it shelf stable. So you'll see it stacked like beer at the end of an aisle and it's just fine that way it doesn't keep fermenting and making more alcohol or going off in any way mm. the live cultures stay happy so mm. it's a kind of a, a unique product in the kombucha arena in that way and uh i helped with a lot of the r&d around it so i'm really kind of proud of it yeah the, the well i mean isn't kombucha kind of i mean how i got into it was th- through more like wellness stuff originally isn't kombucha like traditionally pitched as something that's like really good for you and whatnot yeah yeah i mean and the the microbial cultures in kombucha are a lot of like the lactobacillus that you see uh in like the little tablets you can buy at the pharmacy for probiotics they uh it's it's those same guys that people have studied for their health effects Hmm. that grow in the kombucha scoby so, so is is hard kombucha healthy? We like to say it's healthy-ish. healthy-ish. Um, it, so it's got the, all those I'm, live I'm cultures. I'm going to ask some real hard pressing <laughs> questions today. It, you know, it's an alcoholic beverage, so yeah, right. you know, it's. I mean, drink your glass of wine a day, type of thing sure, from your doctor. Sure. This comes with a little bit of an added benefit of those cultures. It's. You know everything in moderation, I guess. Right, but right. Yeah, uh, I can't ever. I've I've never learned the moderation <laughs> thing. It's not alcohol. It's every single thing in my entire life. I would like hard kombucha too much, but I'm very fascinated. And you've given talks about the coevolution of of humans and yeast, and right. you have a lot of uh, uh, knowledge and ideas about how how humans co-evolved and and why we have beer. Why do we uh, even uh, why do we even metabolize alcohol in the first place? Can you uh, can you kind of t- walk us back through the beginning? So this whole idea came uh, out of this uh, idea I had while I was sitting at the brew pub downstairs, drinking my shift beers. So we get two beers after work every day. It's a great perk of the job, and I'm just sitting there drinking my beer 
And all of a sudden, I'm hit with this thought, you know, why am I able to break down ethanol? How is it that I have this whole set of genes? It's not just one gene or two genes. It's this whole set of genes for breaking down this compound that is really a toxin. I mean, yeast make alcohol a sort of a way of putting up a picket fence around their food source and keeping other microbes from eating it and getting at that sugar that they want too. So it's it's sort of part of this microbiological chemical warfare that's going on all the time. Uh, antibiotics are produced by a lot of molds. It's, a, it's sort of another example of that. And so I'm sitting there, I'm drinking this toxic beverage, yet my body somehow evolutionarily has these genes to break down the alcohol. And it got me thinking, well, what's the origins of this? Where did the ability of humans to break down alcohol come from? And I was like, you know, it probably goes back pretty far, but I had no idea how far back it went. It was really mind-blowing when I started digging into some of the literature around this. It goes back to early primate history. And some people think it's even tied to the ability of primates to find ripe fruit in a forest. So in Hood River here, we're surrounded by orchards. We've got all of these fruit trees. They're in all these nice, pretty rows, but that's not the way fruit grows in a forest. There's probably scattered trees uh, here and there, and the fruit, but fruit's going to be ripening at all these different points in time. And so how does a primate in that forest find that nutrition source when it's at its most nutritious. It's sort of thought that these early genes for breaking down alcohol or some of the earliest genes for breaking down alcohol um, were beneficial because ethanol, it's volatile, right? It's this volatile compound that can move into a gas phase and move through the air and it smells. And so what if these primates, much the way fruit flies do, use alcohol to find the nutritious food? It's an incredible evolutionary advantage to be able to find your food at a distance by being able to smell it. And humans aren't really known for having good senses of smells compared to animals like dogs or rats. But when it comes to the ability to smell alcohol, our primate ancestors in this lineage are actually better than those organisms at being able to smell alcohol. So <laughs> we're good at finding our booze when we sure. need to find it. So if, you, if you're using, you know, these, this scent cue to find this fruit that's in its most nutritious state, because yeast chew on sugar and make alcohol, since basically the origins of fruit, there have been yeast chewing on the, uh, the sugar that the, that's produced as the fruit ripens. And so that means that in this ripe fruit that you're trying to find, there's ethanol too. And so you have to have the ability to break down small amounts of this toxin to be able to use ethanol as a scent cue to find this ripe fruit tree. Hmm. So basically moving through the trees in the forest and finding fruit is sort of the beginning of the story. And, the, you know, we're talking 70 million years ago ish um and then 
I mean, that, that might be why why we are drawn to flowers as well. Because if you if you kind of rem- remember a spot where there was flowers in the future, there would potentially be fruit there as well, right? Like uh, kind of the uh, smelling alcohol would be exactly when it's ready, right? But flowers would would indicate that down the line there will be fruit there. Likely, I mean, yeah. you know, that's sort of the whole angiosperm fruit fruit. F- <laughs> flower fruit thing you know the the flower is pollinated and that sort of makes the body of the fruit eventually mm-hmm. so um i don't know i've never thought about that before i think that's why we like flowers i think that's why we're drawn to them i think Booze? i think uh, no no because as a source of fruit i think that's why guys have been bringing ladies flowers for because they're out and about and they'd be like they could bring flowers back and be like, hey, look, I found this future source of of resources that I know where they are. I plucked them. So you don't know where this is, but I know where this future source of resources is. And it became this tradition of <laughs> that, that's my just so story that isn't in any way provable <laughs> and is just my own idea of of why we evolved to give flowers to ladies. But Hey, it's a fun one. Yeah, that sounds good to me. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, so alcohol, we can smell alcohol from, uh, uh, ways away or, yeah. or certainly a our, good distance. Yeah. Uh, other primate relatives yeah. can. And so, uh, first off, when it, when you went back to why can we metabolize alcohol? What are, are there things that aren't, are like other mammals? Like if I'm, should I stop? Uh, putting beer in my dog's dish, I guess is what I'm, what I'm asking you. It, it, is alcohol like, uh, is alcohol harmful or undigestible for other species? Yeah. So there's this, it's actually sort of as a great lead into the next part of the story because, um, there's a whole set of genes for breaking down alcohol and the, the early ones did an okay job and you could handle like ripe fruit, which has about 0.5% alcohol uh, by weight. It's not a lot, um, but is there's this branch of primates that comes off, and it's sort of the bonobo, gorilla, chimpanzee group that we came out of. And there was a a change that happened in a gene that we now call alcohol dehydrogenase four (ADH4), and this gene um, in other primates is functions for breaking down this, uh, compound called geraniol. And it's sort of, it's named for geraniums. It has this floral scent. Oddly enough, it's a compound that's common in hops and gives, uh, some of these newer dry hopped beers that floral aroma. It's, it's a characteristic compound of hops that people desire in beer. But it's also in plants, it serves as an antifeedant. It's a compound in plants that they produce to keep organisms from chewing on them and eating them up. So too much of this compound can make you sick. Uh, drink too many IPAs, you get hop gut. I sometimes wonder if this geraniol isn't, you know, sort of that illness producing compound. But mm. the precursor to alcohol dehydrogenase four was really good. Hop gut is a really pleasant way of putting it too, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> So this this precursor gene to alcohol dehydrogenase 4 uh, was really good at breaking down geraniol. And if you look at the structure of geraniol and ethanol, the tail end of geraniol has that hydroxyl group on there, just like the hydroxyl on ethanol. And a single 
amino acid change in this protein takes it from being really good at breaking down gerenial, this antifeedant, to making it really good at breaking down ethanol, 40 times more effective at breaking down ethanol. When you look at the stopgap food of the primates that have the precursor version of this, they tend to chew on sticks and bark and leaves when they can't find a good food source. It's just sort of something, a little bit of nutrition. That's where that ability to break down that antifeedant comes in, is that they are going to be eating this stuff and they need to be able to eat. But when you switch over to being able to break down ethanol 40 times better and not being able to break down geraniol as well, you can start eating the fruit on the forest floor that's a little overripe, fallen off the tree, gotten bruised, given the yeast more access to the sugar, and has higher alcohol content, up into a few percent range. So overripe, bruised fruit uh, is going to naturally ferment. Anywhere there's sugar, there's going to be yeast, and those yeasts are going to make alcohol. So you end up with this damaged fruit of a higher alcohol content being able to be an actually very nutritious uh, backstop food when you don't have just the ripe fruit with a lower alcohol content. The ability at that point to break down the higher levels of alcohol comes in. So this single change in this gastric alcohol dehydrogenase 4 let this group of primates transition to a more nutritious yet slightly toxic from the alcohol food source rather than chewing on sticks and stems and leaves and bark. Plus, if you're on hard times and you and you end up getting drunk, maybe you won't forget. Maybe you'll kind of uh, blow off some steam and forget about your issues with with finding fresh fruit at yeah. the moment when you get a buzz. Yeah, but the funny thing is, is that this is what brought our primate ancestors onto the forest floor, and hmm. part of the reason we probably and they walk around on the forest floor as opposed to hanging up in the trees. That's where this food is. Part of the reason why we walk is because of alcohol, which inhibits our ability to walk. Basically, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Well, there's also, I mean, alcohol also uh, can increase appetite, right? Like, I'd often get home from a night out and make myself a peanut butter and ramen hot dog bun with mustard on top or something like that and eat whatever so uh, so alcohol it, it can increase the appetite and make you eat more and in, in uh in a time when there there is plenty of fruit around right so it's called the aperitif effect uh, sort of like a before dinner drink effect you have a little bit of alcohol and it allows you or makes you want to eat more food and it's it's a real thing and some people think that that's could have been an evolutionary driver. If you're able to source food with alcohol, you're able to break it down. Those lone trees in the forest that have that nutritious food for a very limited window, when you find that, you want to eat as much of that as you can because it might right. be a while before you find another tree. So that a little bit of ethanol being a trigger for consuming as much of this nutritious food as you can when it's available to you kind of makes sense in that context hmm 
Yeah, that's just, I mean, it's why we have fat cells and everything. There's long history of needing to pack away as as much energy as we could when we could get it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I'm I'm now picturing my my drunken listeners stumbling in late at night and talking about how they 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 have what it's called aperitif. Uh, what, what is the aperitif effect? Yeah. Is that what they're not going to remember that when they're drunk munchies go for drunk munchies, drunk munchies. I evolved to be this way. Uh, so that, uh, that is, um, that is so very fascinating. So, so that's alcohol, right? Um, just generally. And then, and then what happened when, when did we, uh, when did we start? Uh, kind of refining these alcohol tastes and branching off into these different kinds of alcohol. When when was the uh, uh, when did when did beer start taking off? So and and by the way, I know this is going to be really controversial because even even my most hardcore evolutionary thinker fans out there, most of them will agree that that God created beer. Uh, and so, so probably going to get some angry letters from people, but when, when, uh, did kind of beer, uh, itself become a part of the, the human diet? Well, so because alcohol has always sort of been a part of, uh, food consumption, it, it's kind of hard to pin down when we started actually making alcohol intentionally because, what if you realized that that fruit on the forest floor made you feel weird and mm-hmm. not in a good way that's going to like magic mushroom kill you, but in a way that, you know, actually sort of lowers your social inhibitions and, you know, makes you chill and relaxed. And alcohol is straight up calories too. Mm-hmm. Um, we convert alcohol back into sugar and use it as energy. So even the alcohol itself is f- nutritious food. It probably, I like, I, I live in the beer, beer world these days. So I like to go towards the grain as a, a marker of when we started coming up with ways of producing alcohol because just sort of ripening fruit was probably just there. Um, but actually having to collect grains and process them to be able to make alcohol is something that's entirely different and requires some thought and focus. And so if you have these, you know, hunter gatherers, um, we're sort of moving more into the human realm now. You, you have these hunter gatherers out there gathering grains and say they leave these grains out and they dry out. Then they get a little wet and they start to germinate and then it dries out again. That's basically the process that we use for malting barley is you get it to germinate a little bit. It starts to make the enzymes that are required for breaking down sugar and then we dry it back out again so we can have those enzymes ready to break down the starch into sugar when we want it to make our wort for our beer. And that could just happen naturally by grain sitting around in a container. Um, so that part you can sort of see happening naturally. What happens if that gets wet again? Then you start to activate those enzymes. You're breaking down that starch into sugar and you have this 
what would probably be a sweet gruel type substance. And that sweetness is desirable. And so you go from a starch that you can't really taste the sweetness of to this sweet gruel that has, you know, this more bioavailable sugar for us to digest and break down and eat and enjoy. Um, anything, any yeast from the natural environment gets in that and it's going to turn it into an alcoholic soup. Hmm. So this is yet another thing that, that my, drunken listeners are going to be <laughs> yelling at, at during in there uh, when they're experiencing a aperitif uh, aperitif is, is sweet gruel is, yeah uh, that's going to be another drunken slur yeah so if you think about it the this sweet gruel it it's something that you could be could be a precursor of bread, but also a precursor of beer. Some people think that bread and beer came about hand in hand, and that as soon as you have the harvesting of wild grains and any sort of storage for any period of time, chances are that that could lead to this sort of wet dry cycle that could have produced an alcoholic type gruel, and it's it becomes then interesting. So this stuff, okay, you're starting to do the breakdown of the starch into sugars, so that's helpful, makes those sugars easier to get at. But the yeast is also doing some things in there too. It's um, breaking down some compounds that are in the grains that bind up some uh, minerals and spirit them away and keep them from being able to be uh, absorbed into your gastrointestinal tract. There's uh, the yeast dividing and growing and being part of that product is providing essential amino acids. You're basically making that grain mush more nutritious and making some of the bad stuff go away and making some unique good stuff in it by having it actually ferment out. Hmm. Well, so, so there's all sorts of uh, fascinating uh, nutritional benefits uh th that would have helped it evolve along the way but then but it seems like we just we do have a a taste for just alcohol itself is that just a a modern modern alcohol hijacking our our now evolved reward systems like 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 if you're doing a shot why would you be there's there's i don't think there's much nutritional value in doing a jaeger bomb right uh, but yet we're we're kind of drawn to this what what happened is it is it just because once we gained the the propensity to or the ability to metabolize alcohol what what happened between just being able to metabolize and being able to like endure whatever toxin of alcohol and actually having a craving for it so i I don't really know. I mean, I think it could have been a lot of sexual selection happening. I honestly think that. I think a lot of uh, a lot of our uh, ideas. I, I think a lot of say religions, for example, that say like be fruitful and multiply, end up evolving because they end up 
the people that follow that tradition end up passing genes on. I think alcohol in much the same way uh, is it, you're going to be less inebriated and and probably produce a few more offspring, I would think, than you would have with, without alcohol. And so maybe having some taste for alcohol. And then there's in social situations, it can it it seems to be this uh, you know this disinhibiting. Um, people would say social lubricant um and uh so i i don't know it seems it's just do you know what i'm trying to get at when when like alcohol started separating from like the nutritional benefits itself and i mean it's still there right so once and and certainly i mean i i mean we like pixie sticks even though there's no nutrition there because that's kind of hijacking our reward system that's meant for us to go out looking for fruit and whatnot that was scarce in our past environment that now we can have all the sugar we want um so so i don't know maybe it's that kind of situation i mean you know alcohol is a drug and like any drug our system is wired to respond to it um in some form or fashion when you think about cannabis and uh cannabinoids and their impact on you know our brain our brain has an endocannabinoid system that's sort of tweaked to do certain things normally and this exterior chemical coming in from, you know, a marijuana plant has a similar structure and can have a similar impact. Um, with alcohol, you know, I, I haven't done the digging on that, whether there's some endogenous thing or whether because evolutionarily alcohol goes back so far, it's just tied to our brains and the way they've evolved. But, from the social aspect that you were bringing up, as soon as you're able to make alcohol and you sort of have these nutritional benefits along with this, so this sort of, uh, psychoactive effects as well, mm-hmm. you start to have this sort of bonus thing. And when you look at societies and how, the transition from hunter gatherers to a more sedentary lifestyle that was around the harvesting of grain. And so people coming together in social groups was actually tied to and settling down in a place was tied to growing of grain. And was that grain being grown for bread or for beer? Right. Oh, what if bread is beer? I mean, when you think about it, the bubbles in bread, that make bread so tasty and yummy and just have a great structure to it. Those are CO2 bubbles from yeast fermenting sugars. And so like the CO2 that's in beer, it's the same thing, except it's in bread, but you bake the bread and you drive off all the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Seems kind of a waste. Why don't you just eat the gruel and get the booze in there too? But the, once this is, I, I've, I'm like really pro gruel now. <laughs> I, I didn't know, I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. I was going to come in here today and be like, you know what? I got to get into gruel, <laughs> boozy gruel. Yeah. This is our uh, air freshener and then boozy gruel. This is our two. Now that's two million dollars we're looking at splitting. That's a million each. Okay. I'm down. <laughs> so. There's sort of this thought that society and culture had to sort of develop around people hanging out together. And when they look back archaeologically at early uh, settlements and early 
structures tied around religion, there's usually some sort of semblance of a feast. It, it takes a lot of people to raise a giant stone up on its end and anchor it in the ground so that it stays up. Well, how do you get a bunch of people together to do that? I, I sort of look at it as the same thing as you getting your friends to come over and help you move that heavy couch. Mm-hmm. You offer them pizza and beer. And that sort of is probably what was going on as you start having these isolated groups interacting more towards common goals. There's evidence of it being tied to uh, a sort of like feast and then the tie in there of alcohol as well as sort of a, you know, non-detrimental psychoactive um, social lubricant, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, well, you can also scare the crap out of people and tell them if you don't raise this big stone head up, the gods are going to come and and like people are like, all right, I guess we got to lug this thing around and hoist it up. But uh, yeah, alcohol. Well, I mean, rituals and ceremonies seem like they were a very big part of our 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 past. I mean, they're certainly a large part of modern society. But any hunter gatherer society, any archaeological records it seems like there's kind of these dance pits um found around around fire pits these well-worn areas that people must have been dancing around and and uh i mean uh, people dance without alcohol but (laughs) but people sure dance a whole lot more (laughs) with a little alcohol in them and and there i i mean i think that there um we we have this uh uh I mean, there's just so much going on here because there's uh, humans have this amazing um, ability to uh, we have this prefrontal cortex and all this great self-control stuff and and can kind of focus and be diligent and stay on top of things for, you know, a, a limited amount of time before needing a break and whatnot. But but there's also situations where we, we now find ourselves overthinking things and and stressing out too much over things and then you have something that shuts that region of the brain off i can see that being beneficial in certain areas of of uh certainly a social life i mean i don't think that i ever would have been a comedian with without a little a little boost of courage from alcohol i I, uh you know there there's been some relationships that probably uh got got a little bit of a start because of alcohol not probably absolutely did um so there and then just the psycho uh, anything with a psychoactive effect kind of just getting ourselves out of ourselves and and a mind altering substance that has us in in a somewhat benign way where we're not dying that has us uh thinking of things in a different way than we normally do there's benefits there you might sit down for your your shift beers and come up with this great new idea for a <laughs> for a talk uh it, so uh, there's there's just it seems like there's a lot of benefits because there's definitely negatives oh, yeah. to alcohol as Certainly. well. But alcohol, I don't know, it's sort of recognized to a certain extent as a drug of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, caffeine is a drug of keeping you awake. You know, nicotine sort of the same thing. Alcohol, uh, when you're sitting down having a few drinks and you're talking with friends. And I, I know for me, certainly, it's when I'm at my most creative. I just have to make sure I'm not 
too many drinks since that I forget too all my creative. creative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I have a question for you. And, and by the way, I sometimes get all over the place. And, and if you just have something that you really want to get out there, you know, whatever, just stop. You're welcome to steer the ship at any time that you want. But when it comes to alcohol, so much of, so much of what humans have done with it when, when we, uh, have, you know, you, you took me through the plant and there's a bunch of different flavors of alcohol and then there's wine and these, there's a bunch of different liquors, a bunch of different flavors. And, and you, you read a wine bottle description and it's all, uh, about, you know, it has, uh, apricot aroma or, you know, whatever. Uh, you go to a weed shop and, there, there might be some of those flavor descriptions, but there's not, but, but there's also descriptions about like, this one will relax you at the end of the day. This one is more of a stimulating. This one's more for, um, uh, being creative. This one's a gigglier one. There, there's these, there's these different, whether it's a placebo or not, it's certainly marketed as there's, there's, and, I think most most potheads would would say that there's these different actual psychological uh, um, psychoactive effects within these different strains, you, but you don't hear that so much with alcohol, right? Like you don't. It, it, is there? Is it just because there's just like one alcohol, uh, you know, one way in which alcohol um, affects the brain, and it's just you you increase it and it has this effect or you decrease it and it has this effect or is there like a wine can make you goofier beer can make you you know do you know what i'm trying to get at yeah tequila makes you get naked yeah yeah like uh, you never you never hear like a, this wine will make you like uh um, almost a little too honest with uh, what couch did I just wake up on the next day? A little bit of an after, <laughs> you know. You don't. It's all just in the flavor. You don't hear about the actual effects. I, I mean, sort of the there's these stereotypes about you know tequila, like I just said, or whiskey making people angry. There's some of that to it. Again, I don't know how much of that's just sort of the placebo or the perception mm-hmm. of it. Um, but alcohol as a molecule is really very simple. It's, it's this tiny little molecule. It looks like a puppy dog. Um, I'll show you the model in the labs. <laughs> if we I go back down. It's yeah. an adorable <laughs> molecule. Alcohol wins the award for cutest molecule. But uh, so I think that the effects that it has are sort of can impact different parts of our brain, but have a pretty consistent effect as long as there aren't other things in there with the alcohol that could complicate that. Um, so like with marijuana, you're talking about balancing CBDs and THC or something like that. There's a variety of things going on there that have various impacts. Alcohol is pretty much just alcohol. Mm. Hmm. Uh, oh, that's interesting to know. I, yeah. I, I mean, hmm. I, I've just always been curious about that. Yeah. Uh, alcohol is alcohol. Uh, so what, what is, what is it about these, all of these different flavors and be, and, and by the way, I'm curious, is this just like, uh, uh, cause I, cause I've only really been to like Europe and Australia, which are fairly similar culturally to America. Do, do other, other cultures, are they all, is, does everyone have like the wheat and the ale and the IPA or are, are, are there like, are, are there cultures out there that have, 
uh, flavors of beer that have yet to uh, take off in the U.S. I'm yeah. just trying to think of our third million dollar idea is all. Well, so there's the uh, chicha, the corn beers that you chew on to uh, get your what? the amylase in your saliva to start breaking down the starches, much the way molting the barley would. So you uh, chew on it and spit it out. And then the wait, sl- what is this? Chicha, chicha, and it's uh, it, you're gonna have to explain. It's the, it's corn. What is it? So basically, you chew on corn. Okay, and the amylase uh, is an enzyme in your saliva that helps break starch down to simple sugars. And yeast needs simple sugars to ferment. Hmm. So fruit, the sugar is simple. It's easy for them to go with uh, malted barley. We need the enzymes from the malting process to break the starch down into. Uh, simpler sugar so that they can chew on it uh, and corn corn you know there's not the malting process like there is for barley so you have to get some sort of uh, starch cutting sugar or starch cutting enzyme in there to make the sugar available for the yeast and people did that and do it by chewing on it hmm. to um if you ever grab a i'm not i'm not feeling a, a, a third million dollar idea with this one so continue spit corn beer right <laughs> okay that may not be a winner but uh it's uh it, if you ever have like a grain um or even a piece of bread and you chew on it for a really long time and just hold it in your mouth and chew it you'll find that it starts to become sweet uh-huh. and that's the amylase in your saliva freeing up the smaller sugars from the starch and activating those sweet receptors hmm. and so it's the same thing yeast need those those sugars those simple sugars to ferment the alcohol so chewing on it getting the amylase in the corn helps make that um there's you know honey wine meads are common in certain cultures again you you're working from sort of a fruit like simple sugar and going uh, forward with that with the yeast being able to ferment it um i've been to renaissance fairs yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's all sorts of different uh sources for alcohol hmm. out there that people have come up with hmm. and you know it's it's pretty crazy to think how much effort goes into the production and refining of alcohol this is another thing that I was sort of mesmerized by is the entire industry around alcohol and alcohol production. Being mm-hmm. a part of it is really interesting to sort of have the insider's view of all of the work that goes into getting that beer in a bottle I, I, and I, I on got, somebody's uh, doorstep <laughs> or on somebody's shelf to take home, you know? I just took, I, I, I got to go through, uh, I got to, you took me on this lovely tour through the facility and, and I mean, just, uh, there's going to be, by the way, listeners just finally got on Instagram and I took some, some pictures, some pretty cool pictures, which I'm, I'm not, they might not be good. I'm not used to taking pictures, but I'm told you need to be on the Instagram these days. So I'm going to give it a shot. Um, and this, this wonderful sleek facility and everything else and everything's packaged really, uh, efficiently and it looks sleek. But then you took me into the lab and explained some of the stuff that was going on in the lab and i was just like how adorable 
is it that people try to like brew beer in their garage <laughs> because <laughs> this is they have no idea what what you got you guys are like changing the dna structure <laughs> of things there is but, nothing genetically uh, modified uh, in our product there are people right. talking about doing that and like genetically modifying yeast well, to get not? specific flavors uh, but, i mean what's uh, yeah, people people with their G- gmo fears i don't even i don't even yeah. get what the what the fear is necessarily about there but yeah so we're uh, using actually dna to um it's like the when i was talking about working in my dad's lab as a kid mm-hmm. early on i'm using that same methodology polymerase chain reaction to identify potential cross-contamination between the organisms in our kombucha which could wreck our beer yeah and so making sure that our cleaning is working and making sure that we're not doing that why is, not just use a whole different facility three million dollar idea uh, that would probably be a lot more expensive. If, wait, wait. So if we See, keep coming up with these ideas, <laughs> then we'll be able to buy a new facility to put the kombucha. kombucha. All right. Yeah. I want to be head of the booch. Um, I, uh, uh, do you call it the booch around here? We just call it Kyla. <laughs> okay. Um, so, well, first off, so one of the things that was really fascinating to as I was going around and I'm watching the beer being bottled, I'm I'm watching the caps come and I'm watching it get sealed and there's all this foam coming out everywhere that then gets like wiped off as like goes through some wiper system and and I and I'm thinking to myself like why why is it being shaken up so much? Why is it is it just a product of of the machines going really quickly and then you explained this exceptionally important process that uh, i really would have never thought of with the the airstream can you it's a it's actually a stream of really hot high pressure water so it probably only introduces a few microliters of water into the beer but the cold beer um has the carbonation in it right and so if you do anything to it um, like Mentos and Coke you put something in there that triggers the formation of foam it's going to make foam right and so we have this tiny stream of hot water pointing into every bottle as they zip by and that happens right before they get the cap put on them Mm. so you get this little bit of foam pushing all of the oxygen out of the bottle right before it gets the end put on it, the the cap. And that keeps the beer fresh longer because there's less oxygen in there to damage the beer. And it's just something that, you know, somebody came up with that makes a ton of sense now, but I wouldn't have ever thought of. Hmm. Canning is completely differently. Like we we don't have that jetter, that little stream of water. We actually have a little thing as it brings the top of the can around to put onto the open can full of beer. And the cans have a big opening, right? There's a little puff of CO2 that's blown under the can lid right before it gets seamed on. And mm-hmm. that moves all of the oxygen out much the way the foam does in the bottler and keeps our dissolved oxygen levels low in our product. Hmm. Um, yeah, there, there's, uh, there is so much more going on to beer than I would have ever imagined, especially because this is everyone, everyone's getting, uh, involved in this these days. Everyone wants to figure out how beer is made and they have their, they're ma- making their cases of, of beers at home and everything else. What is, how hard is it to make like a good quality beer <laughs> to yourself? Because I've never, 
I I think I've I've tried like one beer that someone like home brewed or whatever, and uh, I wasn't terribly. <laughs> impressed. I've had a lot of good homebrew, yeah, but I can't bring myself to brew beer anymore. Yeah. I I used to. I only did it a couple times, and now that I work in a brewery, I see how hard it is to make really good beer, right? And do it consistently. Mm-hmm. I I know that. Any beer that I can make in my home would not hold up to the beer that I make at work. And I, I just can't do it. I'll make wine. I'll make cider. I'll make mead. I'll make all sorts of stuff, but I don't brew beer at home mm. because it's hard. Beer is hard. Hmm. Speaking of the different kinds and, and how hard it is and everything that goes into it. First off, IPA. Is IPA a scam or what? This is my, that's my next big controversial question for you. Everyone's wild about the IPAs. I, I could never get into them myself. I take it they're a bit of an acquired taste. What's going on with the IPA? Some people, I've heard rumors that people say like IPA is just like an easy way for home brewers to like mask whatever poor quality stuff that they're putting out because it's such a strong, pungent flip. And I don't want to get you in trouble with full sale here. I'm sure they make a lovely pro- but I mean, people want IPA, you give them IPA, but is it, what, what is the benefit of IPA? I don't get it. Is it just like we're conditioning ourselves to like something that isn't naturally good tasting? Has anyone ever had like their first IPA ever? And they were like, I love that. And I'm going to switch to IPA right away. I don't think that's ever happened. I, you know, I, I like all sorts of different beer styles. Okay. Uh, I, but the go-to beer for my shift beers is our easy IPA every day, every right. time. That's the beer I go to. And IPAs, I think, you know, have that good rap, bad rap thing going on where, yeah, they're a fad. And so you're going to have people saying, oh, it's just a fad. But the, the diverse. <laughs> is that what I sounded like right there? <laughs> I think I did. That was a pretty good impression of me that you just did. The, uh, but the diversity of flavors and aromas that you can get out of hops using these new techniques like dry hopping and things like that that haven't, you know, that people are experimenting with really gives you this incredible palette to paint with when you're making flavors of beer. And if, they're good. They're not like these total bitter hop bombs. There's complexity to them. There's, you know, citrus character and floral notes, like we were talking about with the geranial. And there's all of these sort of like piney, grassy notes that you would attribute to like various wines and things like that, that you can draw out. And I think from a brewer's perspective, it's a really creative outlet to be able to come up with a really good IPA that's, you know, uniquely something where it's, you know, a light lager is kind of a light lager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, well, first off, I should say I was never, I was never a beer aficionado in any way. I could never drink beer fast enough for it to get me as stinking drunk as I wanted to be because I have real self control issues. I'm like a give me 20 shots so I can black out and forget about existence for a while kind of guy. Turns out that'll get you in a little bit of trouble after a while. Who knew? Uh, so I would have, hey, if I could, 
if I could go back in time and only ever drink beer and no other kind of alcohol, I think everything would have been a-okay for me. Nothing horrible happened. I just, it would have eventually. Um, but all of that is a long-winded way of saying I don't have a, a great palate when it comes to beer. What, what's going into, uh, what what's the what is going into the different pro- so is IPA is that the hardest one to make? Making a good IPA is really hard. Okay. Um, I think sometimes, like you were saying, you can use hops to overwhelm some of the defects. I think some people do that, but the really good quality and consistent beer makers out there that you know have a laboratory in their brewery. I never really realized that there were laboratories and breweries mm-hmm. until I applied for a job in one. And I had no idea like the amount of work that goes into making a quality and consistent product. It, there's a lot of science in it. Like we get down to the molecular level of hop compounds and how different treatments of the hops impact that. I have to say, I, I was not, when I showed up here today, I was not expecting to have a hard time following <laughs> anything about the beer process. And when you were sh- giving me a tour of the lab, I was like, wow, this is exceptionally complicated. Yeah, it's, uh, I grew up in labs and the, the lab here is, has a diversity of scientific equipment in it that I've never seen in a single research science laboratory. Um, and, I think a lot of that is because we're looking at this product from all the angles. Like we're really trying to figure out where, how we can make this the best product possible, how we can, you know, improve it and develop new technologies around making beer. It's, it's pretty cool to be doing research and development on products in a brewery. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and with all of this incredible technology that you have to play with as well, like you were explaining to me right at the beginning of the tour, uh, there's a process that you guys use to limit the amount of, or or to um, use less water in the beer making process, essentially. I, I, I've read some statistic recently that, that like a, a can of beer takes X number gallons of water to make, I, I had... No idea. I had no idea that it took more than like twelve ounces of water to make a twelve ounce can of of beer. What? what is it because of the? Uh, what's going into that process? Why? It's a lot. Uh, so when whenever we're hiring brewers, the one of the first things that the human resources guys make very clear to them is that the job is janitorial, as they say, hmm. basically making good beer requires a lot of cleaning Hmm. and cleaning requires a lot of water. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, just walking around the brewery, you probably notice that all the floors are wet. Um, because we're always cleaning. There's always some cleaning process going on somewhere and it's, you have to keep the brewery clean to keep your beer from going bad. It's, I think of, I used to teach a lot of, uh, microbiology to nursing students and, I used to sort of think about infectious disease a lot. Now I think about beer as being a lot like the human body. There's certain organisms, much like there are human pathogens, that can spoil beer and infect beer and make beer bad and make beer sick and kill it. 
because that's what I'm going to do to it if it goes bad is it's going down the drain. Mm -hmm. But it's you really have to protect the beer and use a lot of the same methods that hospitals use. Hmm. We use uh, heat and steam and chemicals to clean uh, our systems much the way hospitals do. We use stainless steel because it's easy to clean, you know? So it's, uh, it's a, it's an interesting tie between, you know, that perspective on microbiology and how I used to use it for medicine. Now it's beer. Hmm. Uh, well, beer is medicine for a lot of people. <laughs> I feel like there, there's actually something interesting in your talk about, about, uh, um, the, uh, what is it? I guess the process of boiling water where, um, uh, it was something like it was, I, I don't know, it was purifying water. The, the beer making process was purifying water in places where people were normally just drinking the water straight from the well or whatever and getting sick. Right. So as, as soon as you start getting people together and living together in tight spaces, you have problems with water becoming filled with poo and spread of infectious disease. And that is really interesting because if you argue that we settled down to grow grain to make beer the making of the beer and the antimicrobial effects of alcohol um, and the process of making beer and the requirement of heating the water up a great deal to get the enzymes active to break down the starches um, cleans the water for you. So beer is safer to drink than water at that point. So when you're continually consuming this lower alcohol beer all the time, your body sort of becomes used to it. And as you, these communities become larger and larger, the problem becomes bigger and bigger. And think about what cities were like with all of the infectious disease and the spread of infectious disease. There's a story that I used to teach in my microbiology classes to these pre-nursing students about uh, the origins of epidemiology. And there's this guy named Snow uh, that was in London who's credited with doing the first epidemiological study. And he there was a outbreak around this what was called the Broad Street Pump. It was this pump uh, that accessed well in this area of London. And people started dying all around this pump. And he started taking account of all of the deaths. And he had a map and he put a little black tick wherever somebody had died in a building. And you could see that water's heavy. It's You don't want to carry it far and there's pumps all over town. So the deaths were focused around this pump. There's a building a block away, really close to this pump. There's no deaths in it. And it wasn't until I was researching this story and I dug deeper into that, that I realized that place with no deaths was a brewery. Because <laughs> like me grabbing my beers after work, all those guys were drinking their shifties. They were drinking the beer and they weren't drinking the water. So they didn't die. Hmm. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so this is actually, you're working at, this is in the event of the apocalypse. <laughs> you are in the best place you could be here at the Full Sail Brewery in Hood River. Yeah, if there's a outbreak of cholera, I know what I'll be drinking. <laughs> um, so as we, as we wrap up, I have one more uh, question for you, but I have each of my guests uh, name a charity of their choice each week. So what would you like to plug? So... Like I said, I used to teach at the local community college. And uh, after I left teaching there, I joined the, uh, I was elected to the board. 
And because education is so important to me, I really wanted to plug the Columbia Gorge Community College Foundation, the nonprofit arm of the college that provides scholarships to students and grants to teachers as they're trying to develop programs. Giving back to the community colleges is a great way to support your community. And I'm going to plug mine. Yeah, support your support your underpaid part-time community college teacher. Gosh darn it. All right, last question for you, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining me today, by the way. This has been fantastic. All right, here it is. Are we domesticating yeast or is yeast domesticating us? And you you can have as much as little or as much time as you'd like to answer that question. So I think back in the day before we really understood microbiology and that it was these yeast making uh, the alcohol, they really had us domesticated. We were giving these yeast all the food they could possibly want. We were their servants, basically bringing them meals whenever they wanted it. But as we began to understand microbiology, I think we really turned the tables on the yeast. When, like the understanding of yeast fermenting alcoholic beverage comes back from the earliest microbiologists, uh, Leo Wenhook and Pasteur and, you know, those guys observing uh, the process. Nowadays, yeasts have evolved. Um, and there's this great study from this guy named Kevin Verstreppen in Belgium. He looked at the genomes of all of the yeast in uh, this big yeast collection and compared their genomes. And you can actually use the genomes of these yeast to make evolutionary comparisons and their relatedness tracks with where the yeast are from in the world. And it gets to the point where American yeasts are closely related to British yeast, probably because we were getting our beer from hmm. Britain back in the day in colonial times. Sure. Our lager yeasts are tied to Germany because we got loggers from German immigrants. Like it's, it's a really cool study hmm. with this huge phylogenetic tree. That's absolutely fascinating to look at. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I think we were once the cattle. Um, I think now the, the yeast, beer pong the, tables have turned. Yeah. The, now the yeast are doing our bidding. Yeah. Take that yeast. <laughs> you were looking pretty good for a while there, but we, we cut the strings from your, puppet cords they had a good 70 million year run <laughs> that was it was pretty solid but uh we're looking pretty good right now we'll see maybe you still get us back again one day but right now we're looking good well thank you so much kevin for uh for joining me and for giving me this wonderful tour of of full sail which i encourage anyone that First off, Hood River area, fantastic. I just t I just went whitewater rafting in this area really recently, uh, and you get to go out. I'm looking out the window. There's like kite surfers and stuff. It's beautiful, mountains everywhere. It's it's a great place to come to anyway. And while while you're here, you should stop by the Full Sail Brewery. You can take a tour, have some drinks. There's food here. It's a terrific place. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you once again, Kevin, for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming out. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the show, teacher and author Roxana Eldon joins me to talk about her new book, Adequate Yearly Progress, a novel which 
is uh, some of the characters were actually inspired by some info from the Here We Are podcast. She's a listener and was listening to the podcast while writing the book. So a little bit of this podcast is in the book. And now a little bit of Roxana is on this podcast next week and talking a lot about her other book, See Me After Class, which is a funny, honest, practical guide with hundreds of tales and tips from experienced teachers around the country, the kind of stuff they don't teach you about teaching before you start teaching. Real fun, interesting conversation. You guys know I have a lot of opinions about my education and my upbringing, so we got to uh, chat a lot about that and and what schools are like today and, and things teachers need to know and how... Uh, of course, we can improve things in the future, hopefully. Big aim of this show, always trying to improve uh, things for the future. Gently guide people in the right direction by spreading more information. And I appreciate you guys listening, and I appreciate those ratings on iTunes and Stitchers, those five-star ratings and the comments, everything, all the emails that I get from you guys. I very much appreciate the encouragement. I've been feeling so fantastic lately. Whew, it's good to feel good. I'll tell you that much. It's not always the case that things are clicking in place in life and you're excited about things. And I've been on uh, just quite a roll lately. Love to keep it going with the new show, Stand Up Science. Once again, have shows coming up in Madison, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Des Moines, Portland, Tacoma, Washington, Seattle, and we'll be adding more soon. If those shows pack out, I'll reschedule them, uh, make it a quarterly show, and I'll add more cities. So please do everything you can to let everyone in those areas know Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. If you don't shut your mouth, I swear to God, I'm the 